Welcome to the E-Governance Academy podcast to discover the future of governance. E-Governance Academy has assisted digital transformation globally in more than 130 countries. Our experts will share their insights and worldwide examples on how digital technology could benefit every society. Tune in for the Digital Government Podcast every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to E-Governance Academy podcast. My name is Linnar Wiik, Head of Smart Government programs at e-governance academy and i'm truly happy to have with me today in the studio my dear colleague senior expert of legal frameworks at the estonian e-governance academy distinguished dr katrin newman metcalf and our topic today will be issues related to potential privacy concerns associated with a recent uh, covid uh, topics all around the world, but broadly also the human rights in the digital age. Katrin, welcome. And could you start by elaborating a little bit? What is the uh, importance right now of also addressing human rights in the context of the digital age? Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a huge topic, very interesting topic. Um, the human rights in the digital age are incredibly important because um, we want to have the same or even better protection of human rights now when so much of our lives have moved to the digital sphere as we would have otherwise. Um, there's been a bit of a discussion whether one should talk of specific digital rights or human rights in the digital age. This may be more interesting just for, for academics or so, but I think it's important to stress we are indeed talking about human rights and what might change because we're doing so many things digitally. Uh, and as you already mentioned, one of the key things perhaps is the privacy protection and data protection. Not because this is just an issue for digital rights, digital services or the digital world. Actually, data should be protected anyway. But there are so many more situations when we use data when we potentially could use it, when we could have benefits, services based on it. Um, so um, there are new threats, but also, and this is much less talked about, and I think that's something that uh, that should be stressed, there are also new things one can do to protect data, actually make things better in the digital world, safer also from a rights perspective. I could only mention, um, like, say, signatures, traditional signature is not particularly safe. I mean, if you show me your signature, I can probably copy it in a minute, but it takes a much more effort to copy a digital signature. And the same actually with, with different privacy concerns, that one, one needs to see what benefit can there be of all these new technologies. When we take a helicopter view, then on planet Earth, around 5 billion people are currently using, on a regular basis, digital services. They spent one billion years online during one year of 2019. They spend a hell of a lot of time online. They are using a lot of data. They are generating a lot of data. And uh, when we're taking really a helicopter view, how well are different countries and governments addressing the topic of human rights online and in digital context? 
uh, doing it, um, I would say so-so, um, because um, if we take then the protection of privacy and data protection as an example, there's definitely a lot of attention to this topic. Um, everybody in the whole world, I think, would know what the abbreviation GDPR stands for if they've ever dealt with anything related to digital rights. But still, I'll, I'll spell it out. It's the General Data Protection Regulation of the European Union, which is used as a model for, for data protection all over the world. So it is a much broader um, importance than just for, for Europe. And this uh, has inspired a number of countries to adopt new legislation and uh, to um, create new authorities or, or other bodies to deal with data protection. So I would say that in that sense, there is um, at least attention to this. As with all rules and all laws, then um, it's another question how well they are actually implemented and enforced. A bigger problem perhaps is another side of it, maybe even the other side of the same coin, which is access to information, which is also something that is facilitated a lot by technology because I don't need to go to an office and ask to see some papers. I can actually do it from wherever. So if this should be public information, it should be very easy to to reach it. There, countries, I think, um, still tend to behave like they did in the non-digital age. So some countries like transparency or accept it, even if they don't like it, and others just like to hide the corruption of their politicians and things like that. So they're not changing much, even if they would have the opportunity of, of uh, facilitating access. Katrin, you brought up the word famous abbreviation GDPR already. Do you think that is a landmark in the development of digital rights globally? And if it is landmark, then how big landmark it is? Is it really a life-changing and 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 very visible landmark? And um, I think we can call it a landmark, but maybe not a huge landmark because it's not the first time that there are rules on on data protection. And why it is a landmark still is because what I mentioned that it's become really a model for the world for different reasons. Uh, so it's it's used um, to inspire legislation all over the world. And then to come back to what you mentioned in your first question, obviously the very current topic of the, the pandemic, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, here we also see how the the way technology can play a role in this context is seen through the prism of the right to data protection in a way which maybe had this pandemic happened earlier, had this had there not been such a document as the GDPR when this happened, wouldn't have been so obvious. So that now almost everywhere where there are different technologies, apps and other things used to combat this pandemic, there's also a discussion of so how can we ensure that this does not violate the privacy. And, and I would actually maybe make a, a very small speech in defense of the GDPR because I understand it's not love at first sight. It's a huge document with lots of sort of legalistic European language. But if you peel that away, a bit like, say, peeling away the layers of an onion or something like that, you come to the core, which says that data it can be used. It's not trying to prevent services based on data use, but 
it, there must be a purpose, a specific purpose for using the data. So you must know why do I need this personal data. And that somewhere. purpose needs also to be transparent. Absolutely. And there needs to be proportionality. So that the use of data, you, you know, okay, I need this data for this particular purpose. Maybe let's say this is an app, a contact tracing app to, to try to limit the spread of this disease. Then what data do you need? You need to find out who has been close to whom, but you don't need to know lots of other things about this. Normally, you wouldn't even need to know who these people are, but you can anonymize the data. And this is the way you need to think. Why do we need this data? What is it for? And then the proportionality. So what amount of data do I need? How long does it need to be kept, for instance? So it's actually, in a way, it's, it's quite simple. And, and that... Fortunately, obviously it doesn't work everywhere, but fortunately it's at least an important part of the discussion around these, these topics. When you brought up already the case of pandemic, which was in a sense also an eye-opening trigger for the digital transformation in many countries, well, virtually last spring, 98% of the school children suddenly all around the world stopped going physically to the school and every country found its way to carry on the education via different digital means. It was also an eye-opener for many governments, internal public bureaucracy processes which were uh, suddenly made more smoother, more digital and uh, it was a trigger. Have you seen also uh, in the p pandemic context uh, an, uh, worrying examples from different locations on the world that uh, people have not been a trusted government and B, there has been a good cause for not trusting the government uh, with the actions during the pandemic. Um, unfortunately, yes. And there are examples also from um, places where I think this is not because of any ill will or so, but to some extent, maybe understandably, because these different uh, technologies were developed quickly. And I think this really showed how good it is to actually have a functioning digital society anyway, because uh, then you don't need to suddenly do things when, when you need to change the way people behave. But here in many countries, that wasn't the case, but suddenly you needed to do the things that, as we both know, we've had delegations coming and we've talked about this with them for 10 years and they've kept saying, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And now suddenly they did it in a few hours, more or less. So obviously there will be then issues. And um, one of the maybe worrying things from a legal perspective is... Um, is this um, lack of transparency of what it is people are expected to do with these different health rules. And if we keep to the digital sphere, then mainly with these different apps or other programs where you need to register yourself and all the data that's collected. And so that it's, um, and here's an interesting um, sort of difference between what is possible to do and what is a good idea to do, because it's possible even under GDPR that is very strict on data protection to sort of, let's say, um, a bit using simple language to sort of break the privacy a bit if it is for a really good purpose, like for protecting public health. This doesn't mean that this is a good idea to do that. You still should, to the maximum extent, get people's consent to, to give data. And you should, even if you can theoretically do it without consent, make it obligatory to, for instance, have an app, you should still ensure that people understand what it's for and so 
Um, and this is maybe where we've seen some problems. Um, for instance, in South Korea, which is a country that's done very well with uh, uh, with these measures against the pandemic and which protects, has good legislation on data protection, takes it very seriously. Um, then some people found that it was actually quite easy to manipulate the app, which is uh, in Korea. It's used for when you when you arrive to the country and you need to quarantine. The app is used to check that you are in quarantine, um, and this was obviously quite easy to hack into, uh, which could be used, for instance, maliciously to show that somebody is not in a quarantine when they actually were. Um, so they would then have to try to explain themselves or so. Oh, and and for things like that, so um, so that's one example. There's also um, been mentions of how people have more or less been um, uh, sort of forced to to use apps, even if they supposedly um, uh, should be voluntary. Um, and that that they, they that was mentioned, for instance, in India, that people didn't really have a choice if they were in certain public positions and so. Um, and not that it might be a bad idea to use the app, but again, the question was more that people were not really given any explanations. They didn't have a good understanding of what it was. And this created this unnecessary fear and this lack of trust that you mentioned as well. So what should have been a good thing that people would have wanted to do then turned into a kind of feeling that this is something the governments are abusing to monitor citizens. And this is a negative effect that if such an effect is created can stay on obviously also after the pandemic. If you think like, okay, this is just another way of keeping an eye on people and so, so, so there's really a lot to be gained from explaining and getting people to do it voluntary. Of course, the explanation from the governments was also that this is an extraordinary situation. In many countries, it was declared a state of emergency. And that meant that many of the government decisions bypassed parliament. They were not debated in depth with the stakeholders. They were just enforced. And when we are looking hand in hand with a crappy technical implementation you suddenly have a double crisis, not only the emergency in terms of pandemia, but also in terms of the escalating mistrust in society and bad examples. We are entering right now into a famous so-called second wave of pandemia all around the world. As we speak, the number of the people who get infected is increasing and increasing all around the world. Yet governments are preparing for the second wave right now. What would be your advice to the governments in terms of the view of uh, human rights protection in the digital age and also some very practical advice how to make sure that not only the privacy concerns but also the trust in society broader is is not being manipulated I have uh, lots of advice it's always good to to tell others what they should do but i think the first one is very linked to what you mentioned about um, bypassing normal procedures for adopting rules. Yes, it is possible in democratic rule of law states to have emergency legislation, um, to have uh, specific procedures for adopting things quickly. And so those should not be abused. This can be used if it is really necessary, uh, but uh, not to 
too easily because it is really for um, emergencies. And just because a country hasn't prepared for what is, or actually was even before this corona crisis happened, was actually a predictable thing because the experts have been talking about uh, risks of such pandemics for years. So it's not necessary to immediately put the normal rule of law state out of order because something happens that we knew might happen, but that we were hoping wouldn't. But So it's important to put it also in that perspective. So not to um, start lifting protections and start taking decisions in ways which are not intended to be taken unless it is absolutely necessary. I question, for instance, a lot of the um, the measures about closing borders, which um, I think can, of course, also be legitimate. Uh, but again, there should really be proportionality. There should be a clear way of dealing with um, what should be normal correspondence between people. This is happening now when we see more countries are replacing these uh, these total quarantines with with testing and things like that. So again, it's this this question of like people have basic fundamental rights, and you you have the possibility of limiting them for lots of different things. And uh, a global crisis definitely allows limiting rights, uh, but you should always first think so. Why am I limiting this right? What do I gain by this? And then when you know that, then you you can figure out the proportionality. So how much do I need to limit this right? You have no right to ask people, for instance, if they're traveling, why they are traveling. The government doesn't need to know that why I'm going, actually. It's none of their business. It's none of their business now in the pandemic, just as it was none of their business before. Uh, so you also have to to teach this to authorities that it's not a kind of a free for all for authorities to to um, violate all sorts of rights. We have other things like, for instance, this obligation to wear masks. I would say that's okay. People may not like it, but if this is because this is a measure, if it can be proven that it has some positive effect, it is exactly the kind of limitations of people's rights that is okay because it is for a clear purpose. It should be proportional. They can't tell me to wear a mask in my own house, but they can tell me to wear one on the tram. That's fine. Um, so a kind of a general final word of advice, I guess, is this transparency, which is a wonderful word. For a rule of law state, this is really a very key word because the point of a democracy is that you have a dialogue with people and you explain why something is happening. It's not even intended. Everybody should like everything, but at least you should do things in the open. And that way, this discussion about proportionality, purpose and all of that, it becomes something much more than nice words. Thank you. It was number of good advices we got already. Just to end our show today, I would like to bring in another dimension from your legal framework expertise. And this is a case of uh, a regulatory environment and state of law as countries declare themselves. Many of them during the pandemic say that we are not capable of continuing operation. We can't bring together parliament because we need uh, quarantine. We need to have a social distancing. We can't use our offices. We can't use a space we have been working. In some countries, you can't even have a an, uh, an law announced outside of the building of the physical parliament. And uh, 
And it was all uh, explained, we don't have proper laws in place to enable to work us with a digital tool so that it will be legal. What would be your advice? Should the parliaments all around the world, together with the governments, start hurrying up right now to regulate the online presence of the parliament and legitimacy of the decisions made by a government also outside of the government building? Or are there also kind of emergency quick routes to make sure that society continues operating also in legal force. Well, thank you for that question because it gives me a chance to talk about my favorite topic almost when I when I talk of the legal framework of e-governance where people will always, when they meet me as I'm the legal expert, they will talk of legal obstacles to e-government. And I will say there is no such thing as legal obstacles to e-government. Um, this is a little bit provocative statement maybe because obviously if we look at law in a specific country and a specific moment, there might be legal obstacles. But these are not permanent legal obstacles. The only permanent ones would be if there was something that was against basic human rights or so the basic principles of the rule of law society. And there isn't. It's just a question of how you do it. So uh, the the work, the legal work involved with the digital society is to look at your legislation to see if there are any traps, anything that doesn't allow using digital tools. And there can be things like what you mentioned, that you have to be in a specific building. There can be things like saying you need to issue decisions on gray paper where nobody knows what does this mean digitally? All sorts of little things like that, saying that you have access to information and office hours, for instance. So what you should do is to calmly and not in a hurry during a pandemic, but as a sort of normal development of the digital society, go through your legislation and eliminate those things or at least think, do they fill a purpose? Is there a reason why you have to pass decisions in a specific building, for instance? I would normally say no, there isn't. But probably reasons would be brought about security and and ensuring that the right people are actually the ones to sign. So, okay, address that then. Address that with the help of technology to ensure that that can be achieved in a different manner. The problem with doing this now in a pandemic is obviously it's coming at a time when minds are occupied with many other things and also it's coming in this kind of when when also emotionally people aren't very like open maybe to think through things and so uh, but maybe if one has to always try to see some silver lining maybe a positive outcome of this pandemic can be can be to accelerate this kind of thinking so let's see how like these many of these rules are just there out of tradition. So do they fill a function? Because this for lawyers, what we're interested in or should be interested in is the legitimacy of decisions. To know that this decision is taken in a proper manner with all the proper safeguards, we don't care how it was taken. I don't care anymore if it was taken digitally or in another manner than I care if it was taken on Monday or Tuesday. So we need to get away from this thinking of just because this is what we always did, that's nice. We can keep that for for a sort of folklore and traditions, but we don't need to keep it for the legal system. So um, I think this pandemic has shown us that these most of these rules are completely pointless. We just need functioning society, and this can function well in the digital world. 
Thank you very much for all our listeners. My name is Linnar Wiik from eGovernance Academy and with me today in the studio was Dr. Katrin Neumann-Wettkalf, uh, Senior Legal Expert uh, of uh, Legal Framework of eGovernance Academy. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by eGovernance Academy. Tune in on next Wednesday.